Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Shane Willard shares with us a message titled Sour Grapes. We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So I want to um, talk to you about Christmas a little bit and about light and dark, and I'm so honored to be here uh, with my friend Tim Ross's church and what you guys have done over the last year. I, it's been exactly a year, so I can see what's happened, and a lot, a lot, and you guys are on that upward movement. I'm very proud of you. I'm, I'm hopeful for your future. Um, keep going, keep going, keep going. Put the throttle on the ground, because what God is doing here in your, in, in your neighborhood and in your community is fantastic. It's fantastic. So this is a season where we celebrate light coming into darkness. I mean, it's one thing to objectively acknowledge Jesus was born. Okay, yes, absolutely, we embrace that. But what did that mean? What was Okay, so, so what's that mean? Well, I, it means a lot of things, infinite things, actually. But one of the primary meanings is, is, and this should move us and encourage us, is that we don't serve a God who sits in heaven watching suffering. Rather, we serve a God who is willing to humble himself and enter into that with us. That this is a season of light coming into dark. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I want to talk to you about, as a family... What you could do in the next couple of weeks to engage in that light and be the hero for your family tree for the, for the rest of your life. If, if, you, um, if, if you're the type that only listens to the first two minutes of a sermon and the last two minutes of a sermon, listen to me right now, okay? You will never be everything you could be if you spend your life blaming someone else for why you are the way you are. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about light coming into dark. We're talking about taking responsibility. We're going to talk about perpetuating godliness. We're going to talk about this kind because what better time to talk about this than Christmas when families are together and you get to see some of the darkness first. <laughs> and now before, before I read this passage, I want to encourage us around an, an ancient passage. Um, it's so old that some of the words meant something different back then than they do today. And so if you've been walking with God forever, right, I'm not worried about you, but I'm worried about, I'm worried about the person who might be here who's, like, given church a try for the first time. And if I don't explain what these words mean, it, it, can, it can sound, quite frankly, terrifying. And this passage is not meant to be terrifying. It's meant to be empowering, okay? And those words are life and death or light and dark. In an ancient world, when an ancient prophet said, you, if you do this, you will die, they were not talking about literal death, like you cease breathing. Life and death were interchangeable terms that were metaphors around living in God's ways, life, which leads you to peace and abundance and harmony, or death, which leads to an unraveling of completion. It had nothing to do with live, literally being alive or literally dying. It had definitely had nothing to do with heaven or hell. It had everything to do with a realm of life. So, and, and in scripture, it's presented as a choice. Life, death, choose life that you might live. Light, dark, choose to be in the light as he is in the light and avoid darkness. So these were choices that you made that you could come in and out of. Now, here's what's happening in this passage. Ezekiel is writing an encouragement to a group of Jews who find themselves enslaved in Babylon. That's where we are. This is Ezekiel 18 verse 1. If you could pull that slide up. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 1. This is what it says. What do you people mean 
by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The mother eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Lord. I don't want to hear that out of your mouth one more day. Now, a couple of questions about this. One, what does this proverb mean? And two, why is God so ticked off about it? Okay, now... To understand this, we have to understand a brief history of Israel, okay? So I'm going to give you the entire history of Israel in 120 seconds. Everybody sit up and pay attention. This is going to go fast. Ready? There was a guy named Abraham who had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 children. Through a series of unfortunate events, those 12 children ended up in Egypt and given land. And then they started having babies, and those babies had babies, and then those babies had babies, and more babies had more babies, and those babies had more babies, and more babies had more babies, and more babies, and more babies, and more babies, and more babies to the point where this family started to outpopulate the Egyptians themselves. So the king of Egypt, a guy named Pharaoh, did the only thing reasonable to his mind, and that is to enslave and oppress these people to keep them from taking over the place. Years and years and years later, God raised raises up a man named Moses to liberate the slaves and bring them into freedom. He does so through a series of 10 plagues through the Red Sea, and he gives them a piece of land. He also gives them a mandate, and that mandate was, be a nation that maintains justice and righteousness to the poor. I am a God that liberates slaves. I want you to show the whole world what it would be like to be a nation of slave liberators. In short, this went horrendously. By the third king, a guy named Solomon, it says in the books of Kings, it says that Solomon traded horses, chariots, and spears from nation to nation at a profit. That's called arms dealing. It says in the book of Kings that Solomon, it says this, and this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple of the Lord. So, a guy who comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he fails to see the irony in that, right? This goes horribly and this group of people end up back in slavery in a place called Babylon by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And so the prophets are writing to these people. And who do they blame for their slavery? They blame Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of the historical record for several hundred years. They refused to even say Solomon. They just said David's son. This is what you do when you want to wipe the memory from somebody away. If you go through a divorce, you never call that person by their name. You say, my ex or their father. That's how you refer to them. This is what they did to Solomon. They simply called him David's son, right? So the prophets that were encouraging the people in Babylon, they would, they would say things like this. Yes, David's son failed, Solomon. But take heart, for God will bring a new son of David. And that new son of David will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Christmas, and the new son of David is born. 
People call Jesus a lot of things. Jesus Christ, Jesus King, Rabbi Jesus, Jesus son of Joseph. But the poor and the afflicted, what did they call Jesus? Jesus son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David that the prophet spoke about from old? Because if you're the new son of David, that means you're here for the poor. And newsflash, I'm poor. Now, back to Babylon. The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Here's what happens in slave cultures. Slave cultures tend to cope by writing songs. Why? Because you can't make suffering and oppression an intellectual exercise. Suffering and oppression is not an intellectual exercise. Suffering and oppression is, can be explained better in poetry, songs, plays, things like this. And that's what they did. If you want to read a lot of them, read some of the Psalms. Anytime, if you just choose to read through the book of Psalms, anytime you come across a Psalm where the guy writing the Psalm is like, God, can you take the Babylonians' heads and smash them up against stones? That's the slaves, right? The slaves are essentially saying, take my slave owner who bashed my children's head against stones and bashed their children's heads against stones. This is how you cope in oppression. You bring the offense to God, right? So, and you leave it at the throne of the one whose throne is justice and righteousness. And so they were doing this. And one of the songs or the proverbs that got written in this time was, it was Solomon's fault. Because David's son failed, we are where we are. And it went like this. My father ate sour grapes and it set my teeth on edge. Which is a weird statement. Because if I eat something sour, it should set my teeth on edge. But that's not what this proverb says. This proverb says the father ate sour grapes and it set the children's teeth on edge. Now, if in the last five minutes you thought, Shane, this is boring, please, All right, listen, come back to earth. Let me summarize that entire thing in one statement. The current generation was blaming the previous generation for why they were the way they were. Because that's not relevant at all today, is it? We've never seen that before. We've never seen somebody excuse horrendous behavior because of the way their parents are. I'm a pastor and a counselor. Occasionally, pastors have to confront horrendous behavior. And the amount of times that it goes something like this, sir, your behavior is unacceptable. You're fixing to lose everything that's ever been important to you. You've got to sort this out. And the guy goes, I know. But if you knew what my dad was like, you would understand why I am the way I am. Or we go, ma'am, your behavior is unacceptable. This is ridiculous. You're critical, cantankerous, and horrible. I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but your husband is secretly praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. And she says, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would understand why I am the way I am. My dad was a drunk, horrible, abusive, oppressive man, so I'm a drunk, horrible, abusive, oppressive person. My mother was critical, cantankerous, and horrible, so I'll be critical, cantankerous, and horrible. My dad was bad with money, so I'll be bad with money. My dad had a problem with alcohol, so I'll have a problem with alcohol. My mom had a problem with gambling, so I'll have a problem with gambling. If you just knew what my father and mother were like, you would know why my teeth are set on edge. My father ate sour grapes, and it set my teeth on edge. And here's the problem. I, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. 
If you sit down with me and answer my questions honestly in about 30 minutes, I can tell you why you are the way you are. It's not hard to see. Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are. Your mom was horrible. You are horrible. Your dad was horrible. You are horrible. It's not hard to say. Here's the problem. You're 40. <laughs> and at what point are you going to draw a line in the sand and say, just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean my teeth have to be set on edge? How disempowering is it to give all the power to somebody who might, be, had been, might even be dead, but they're definitely not a big part of your life anymore? How Big of a problem is that. Ezekiel saying, I don't want to hear that anymore. No, no, no. That is disempowering. You say, Shane, you don't understand, man. You don't understand. My family had issues. Really? Let me ask you a question about your family. Did your family have a man and a woman trying to live together? Then there's going to be issues. Why? Because marriage is hard and awesome and a blessing and flipping difficult and complex. Marriage is so complex, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Paul says, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> Solomon, marriage, let's do it a lot. Paul's like, make it your 18th choice, seriously. It's hard. Why? Because men and women are different. Even if you have two people who are basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, marriage is still hard because of preference. Most things in a, in a good marriage, they're, they're not about right or wrong. It's about preference. And men and women prefer different things. I'm talking about just basic stuff like smells. <laughs> women prefer sweet-smelling things. Perfume. Flowers, candles. You get a woman a bouquet of flowers, 100% of women are going to do what? Sniff it, right? You hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what that costs. It's ridiculous. You go to a big enough mall, there'll be a candle shop. You walk by a candle shop at almost any time of the day, and you'll see two women in there sniffing candles. Two women can go to a candle shop, sniff wax for an hour, and call that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. You imagine walking by a candle shop and seeing two men in there sniffing wax. Oh, Billy, check that out. That's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something else. Right? Woo-hoo. Oh, that's a good one. No way. No way. Why? Because women like sweet-smelling things. Men, on the other hand, prefer stinky things. Men love stinky stuff. Nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. It's hilarious. 
Women think that's disgusting, but men love it. It's in our code. It's in our DNA. We love stinky things. If, if, if a group of men are playing football and you're bloody and sweaty and nasty and you got to get to a meeting, so you run in and you shower quickly, you take your bloody, sweaty, nasty clothes and you put them in a plastic bag and you tie it up and throw it in the trunk of your car. Three months later, you're looking for something in the trunk of your car and you see that bag and you remember it. Every man in this room knows what must happen. It must it's in our DNA. If there's a bag filled with stinky stuff, we have to open that bag and we have to sniff it. We have to. It's just in us. We can't help ourselves. Listen, if, if you train a man to put his dirty clothes in the dirty clothes hamper, right? And if you're watching, when he comes home from work, he takes his dirty clothes off and he throws it in the hamper. If you watch his socks, just before he throws his socks in that hamper, he will do this. <clears throat> it's like we prove we work. And I'm telling you, if they don't smell bad enough, that man will be like, I think I can get one more wear out of these, I can tell you right now. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And here's the thing about men, right? If there's a bag of stinky stuff, and I've got three of my friends around, they have to smell it too. We pass it around. It's called a courtesy sniff. So they owe me a courtesy sniff of my stinky things. They all, woo, oh, Jim, that's a big one. Oh, yeah, that's a good one right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but here's the thing. When they have a stinky thing, then I have to give them a courtesy sniff. This is, in the, this is in the code of every man. This is why if you're ever out here stuck in traffic and there's four guys in one car and three of them have their head out the window, and the fourth one's in the back seat laughing. He just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. You have a, you have a person who prefers sweet smelling stuff trying to live with someone who prefers stinky stuff? Of course there's going to be issues. Language, issues. A woman says, I've got nothing to wear. The husband says, you've got a closet full of nothing to wear. But every woman knows what that means. When a woman says, I have nothing to wear, what she means is, I have nothing new. Let's go shopping. But when a man says, I have nothing to wear, what he means is, I have nothing clean. Please do laundry. It's two different things. Issues. Say, Shane, you understand, my dad had issues. My dad had issues, man. Really? Your dad had issues? Everybody's dad has issues. My dad's a great guy. I mean, a great guy. I can tell you. I can tell you where my dad was at 4.30 this morning. 4.30 this morning, he was praying for this meeting. I can tell you that because he's praying for me every day at 4.30, every single morning of my entire life. And it's progressively getting earlier. When I was a kid, he got up at 6. When I was in junior high, it was 5.30. When I went to high school, it was 5. I went to university, it was 4.30. Then he started getting up at 4.15 to start praying at 4.30. I was talking to him the other day, and I said, Dad, what's up? He said, I'm thinking about getting up earlier. I said, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. This is like ridiculous. <clears throat> Dad's a great guy. But Dad had issues. Namely, he liked to scare us. And I ain't talking about a mild boo. I'm talking about scare the stew out of a six-year-old stuff. Like, I've never been a morning person in my life. I've always stayed up late, slept in. I could get a lot done at 2 a.m. But I've just never been a morning person. I've always struggled in the morning. But my, my mom would come in, and she'd shake me awake. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm six. She'd shake me awake, sit me up on the side of the bed. And I had a bad habit of just falling back asleep. So my dad decided, I'm going to break him of this. I'm going to break him of this. It's ridiculous. And my dad's idea to break me of this was to hide under my bed. 
I'm six. I think the boogeyman lives under there anyway, right? Mom comes up, sits me up on side of the bed, and I was just about to fall back asleep. And my dad reaches out and grabs my feet. <laughs> your dad had issues. <laughs> of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad. My dad liked to embarrass us. Because one time he was dropping me off for church camp. You know, in the South, you go to Bible camp. It's just what you did, you know. And so we, he dropped me off. There was, you know, I don't know, 150 seventh graders going to camp. What could go wrong? Anyway, he pulls up at the church. There's buses, like, ready to go. He pulls up. He says, son, a couple things. One, I'm proud of you. Two, I love you. Three, I'm going to pray for you every day that God touches your life at camp. I said, thanks, Dad. Love you, too. I go to get out of the car. He said, wait a minute. Where's my kiss? I said, not here, Dad, you know, can, you know, my friends. Dad says, all right, all right, no worries, no worries. So anyway, I hand, the, um, I, I hand the luggage to the bus driver. We get on the bus. 57-passenger bus, big old school bus. I'm sitting in the second to last row. We're fixing to go. I look up, and to my horror, my father had decided to get on the bus. It is summer. He was wearing shorts. He pulled them up to here. <laughs> His socks up to here, and he got on the bus with a limp. He grabs the microphone of the bus, and he says, excuse me, everybody, this bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayney comes up here and gives me a kiss. And the whole bus started chanting, kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues? Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. The question isn't whose dad has issues and whose dad didn't have issues. The question is, is are you predetermined to repeat their issues? Or can you stand on your own two feet as a new generation and choose a different way? Watch what he says. This is the next verse. Is verse 4. For all people are mine to judge, both the parents and the child alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one that will die. In one translation, it says, every living soul belongs to me. See, see in their day, they, we would never believe this now. But in their day, this is what they believed. They believed that God was for certain people and against other people. And so if your life was going really, really good, uh, that's because God is... For you, but, but if your life is sort of not so well, you must have done something for God to be against you. And if God's against you, it might be because of something your great-grandfather did. And there's nothing you could do to undo that. You just sort of got to live through it. And so Ezekiel is changing the thought. He's being refreshingly disruptive here. He's simply saying what you've been taught your whole life is not the complete truth. God is better. Essentially, say God is better than what you thought. That the question is never who belongs to God and who doesn't, or who is God for and who is God against. That's not the question. The question when you look at someone's life is, is if people who choose to live inside God's ways, their life tends to go well. And people who choose to live outside of God's ways, their life tends to go into death, into disrepair. And he gives this enormous argument that we won't read the whole thing. I'll read the end of it. But if you let me summarize the argument, here's what he says. He says, suppose a righteous man has a son, and it turns out that son is a wicked man. And then suppose the wicked man then has a son who turns out to be a righteous man. Does the righteous man pay for the sins of the wicked man? 
No. And does the wicked man pay for the sins of, uh, inherit the righteousness of the righteous man? No. And his argument is, is that every generation stands on its own two feet before God. And in your generation, you choose as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Or you choose to perpetuate wickedness. That's your choice. But when you choose, it determines life. Or death. That if you're in the realm of death, you're not there because of your father. You're there because you didn't change the pattern. And there's patterns in all of our lives that can and should change. Okay. And he summarized. Now, now remember, in this day, that was disruptive. Because they were taught their whole life that if the great-grandfather sinned, it passed down. Ezekiel saying, no, God is nicer than that. Let's make it to where every generation stands on their own two feet because that's empowering. How disempowering is it to think, well, because my great-grandfather sinned, I have no choice but to just live it out. Even though he's been dead for 50 years, I just have to pay for that sin. Ezekiel's like, no, there is a gospel message here, a good news. And that good news is that every generation can stand on its own two feet before God and choose life. So here's the end of his argument. Watch what he says. Uh, verse 18, uh, yeah, sorry, verse 17. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He's talking about the, the righteous grandson. He will not die for his father's sin. He will live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? No, no, when, when you're pushing back against what people have been taught their whole life, they're going to push. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been taught our whole life the son shares the guilt of the father. He's going, no, 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 no. Since the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will live. The one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them. The wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But, this is so empowering. But if a wicked person turns away from their sins they've committed and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will live and not die. Watch this. He says, no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you are one decision away from turning your life around and heading back into life late and increase. This is so, in that day, when they thought there was permanent consequences for stuff, that God was not necessarily God of grace. This was the, the most gracious message going. No, 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 no. Listen, you're going that way. God not only will, will redeem it, he wants you to turn around. He's taking no pleasure in you ruining your life by perpetuating darkness, right? right watch, watch what he says. None of the offenses he's committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they've done, they will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? In other words, Ezekiel's saying, we don't serve a God who is watching someone ruin their life and going, hey, this is going to be awesome. Hey, that road goes off that cliff. Watch this. They don't even see this coming. Oh, this is going to be great. That road goes off that cliff 100% of the time. No, we serve a God who along that road's going, get off the road. Hey, change lanes here. Hey, get off the road. Get, hey, get off the road. There's a proverb that says, a wise person sees danger on the road ahead and shifts roads, but a fool keeps going because it's easier, and in the end, he'll suffer for it. That God's going, no, 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 change lanes, get off the road. <clears throat> it didn't work for you. It's not going to work for them. Hey, watch this. Keep going. Verse 24. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, how will they live? 
None of the righteous things that person will do will be remembered. Because of his unfaithfulness, they're guilty. And because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Now remember, they're pushing back. This isn't what they were taught their whole life. You're saying the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they'll die. Because of the sin, they'll die. But if a wicked person turns away from it, they will live and save their life. In other words, let me just summarize that. No matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision away from turning back into life, light, and increase. But then he makes this observation, which is so true. He says, good decisions do not behave like a savings account. In, in other words, if you make 20 years of good decisions, it's not like you get 20 years of horrible decisions to get back to even. It just doesn't work like that. Like, like, like the best marriage in this room is one decision away from being wobbly. The, the most successful business in this room is one not very well thought out decision from being wobbly. Essentially, his advice is, is that if you're going down the road of death, darkness, and decrease, turn around. There's a better way to live. And if you're finding yourself on the road to life, light, and increase, keep going. Every day, say yes to the infinite possibilities God has for your life. That to a spiritual person, a spiritual person does not see their walk with God as a one-time event. Rather, they see the one-time event as an event that changes the way they see all other events after that. Right? So he says, wait a minute. No, no, no. Keep going. Watch what he says. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Next one. Yep. The Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Here. Hero Israel, is my ways unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways. In other words, not your dad, not your granddad, not your great-granddad, you. You empower your life, you take responsibility, and you live. Repent, that just means turn around. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed. And get a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to read that again because it's so important. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed. And get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent, turn around, and live. <clears throat> now, you might be thinking, Shane, first of all, hilarious. Second of all, it's 2017 Christmas in Dallas. So what? Glad you asked. Couple of thoughts on this to apply. First, all of us are shaped by our history and our heritage. You can hit that for next slide. All of us are shaped by our history and our heritage. And let me, I want to stop and I want to speak slower because I want you to hear me on this. What we all think is normal is formed before the age of eight by your family of origin, and it's not your fault. You didn't choose your mom. You didn't choose your dad. You didn't put them together. You didn't give them amorous feelings for each other. It wasn't your fault, which leads me to an observation about common sense. Sometimes common sense is helpful. We bathe every day. We wash our clothes regularly. 
We wash dishes after we use them. Sometimes common sense is helpful. Sometimes common sense can lose the plot. Oh, it's the weekend. Everybody gets drunk. Is that true? Maybe in your family that was true, but it's not helpful. Oh, everybody's promiscuous in my family. That's what's normal. In your family, that might be what's normal, but it's not helpful. Sometimes common sense is helpful. Sometimes what we think is common loses the plot. The question is, is can we with bravery and wisdom be wise enough and brave enough to go, you know what, this part of my family needs to go on and this part of my family needs to end with them. My dad's prayer discipline needs to go on. His, his work ethic needs to go on. His generosity needs to go on. His love for scaring six-year-olds needs to end with him. And all of us have those things. Which leads me to this observation. And I want everybody right here, if you're the type that listens to the last five minutes of something, listen to me now because it's going to be very helpful and meaningful. In a room this size, it is statistically improbable that there's not a few of us going like this, thinking this. Shane, that was a good sermon. I hear what you're saying. And you stood on that stage and you told the worst stories you could tell about your father and they were funny. If I told you what my dad did to me, it's not funny. If I told you what my mother did to me, it's not funny. If I told you what my childhood was like, it's not funny. I'm glad that you could stand on a stage, tell the worst stories you got about your father and everybody laugh. But that's not my story. And the scriptures say things like this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. And how on earth can I honor someone who was that degradable? Please help me. Okay. <clears throat> Couple things. One, I want you to hear this from the bottom of my heart. If that's your story, I am so sorry. An eight-year-old should have never went through the things you went through. A four-year-old should have never had to carry the emotional weight that that would have brought. It wasn't your fault. I am so sorry. That's first. Second, in Hebrew, honor has nothing to do with what you say to a person and everything to do with how you behave away from them. Let me explain what I mean. You do not honor someone because they're honorable. You honor someone because you're honorable, okay? Now, honor has nothing to do with what you say to a person. For instance, if you're a parent, you get this. If your 16-year-old daughter said, Dad, I honor you, that would bless your heart, right? Absolutely. But what would you rather, her to say she honors you to your face or to know that at 11 o'clock at night when she's out with her friends, she's acting in an honorable way towards you when you're not around? Right? As a pastor, if you tell your pastor, Pastor, I honor you, it would bless his heart, and you should. 
But what would bless him more is to know that when you're representing Embassy City Church out on the town, when he's not here, that you're living in such a way that honors the values of this house out there. That's what actual honor is. So when the scripture says to honor your father and mother, it has nothing to do with what you say to them and everything to do with how you choose to behave away from them. In other words, your parents could have been the worst people on earth and you could still honor them by choosing to live better through the next generation. And generation after generation after generation, somebody will make assumptions about them that aren't true. Let me explain what I mean. Three times a year or so, I get this. Shane, wow. You must come from a long line of preachers. Uh, no. My great-grandfather was illiterate. He couldn't read. He was a moonshiner, which in case you don't know what that is, he made his living running illegal alcohol across state lines. And he was a racist member of the Ku Klux Klan. My great-grandfather, all four of them, by the way, all four great-great-grandparents were illiterate, racists, moonshiners. Four illiterate, racist, moonshining people. So how do you get from that to a guy that has three university degrees, my brother has three university degrees, both of us have given our life to the infinite possibilities Jesus has for, for, for our lives. We, I travel the world to all, the whole world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. John does some speaking as well, but he does a lot of ministerial support for churches and things like that. We've both given our life to the cause of Christ in this world, and we're both very highly educated. How do you get from a literate, moonshining racist to that? Here's how. Our parents, our parents drew a line in the sand and said, uh uh uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just because they acted a certain way doesn't mean we have to act a certain way. Our children will go to school. Our children will learn to read. Our children will learn the presence of God. Our children will learn the ways of Jesus. Our children will go to church. Our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. Our children will change this world because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all it took was one generation of a mom and a dad saying no longer. Just because they ate sour grapes doesn't mean my teeth have to be set on edge. And all it took was one generation to change that family tree forever. In other words, the best way to say this next slide is this, is we must take responsibility, empower our life, repent, and live. On Christmas, when you look at your tree, I want you to think about light coming into darkness. But I also want you to take a second and ask, what is my responsibility to my family tree? Maybe if you're here today and you're married, I would encourage you to do something that cannot be done in one altar call. I would encourage you to have a cup of coffee or a tea or whatever you like with your spouse and ask this hard question. Is there anything that we're allowing in our family that the only reason we allow it is because that's how we were brought up, but it doesn't work? It's not producing light and life and increase. 
Yes, I learned to yell because my mom yelled, but that is not, that, how, what does that accomplish? I learned to isolate because my dad, okay, but what does that accomplish? And will you be, Embassy City Church, will you be brave enough as family units to when you look at your tree and you celebrate Jesus and you invite light to come into darkness, that you include your own family tree in that? That you include your own family. You say, you know what? If we don't make the decision, then that's going to leave it to our children. And if they don't, then their children will have to. Why can't we be the heroes of our family tree? Because of my parents, people in this world assume my illiterate racist great-grandfather was a godly man. What better way to honor him than to choose to live better long after he's gone? Listen. I'm so sorry for what you went through. But the only hope for you to enter into life on this earth. Obviously, they're not talking about salvation here. They're talking about the quality of your life on earth. The best way for you to have the best quality of life on this earth is to honor your parents. What does that mean? You perpetuate the godliness and you repent of the ungodliness. Watch what he says. Last slide. This is what he says. When we choose to live God's ways... He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Here's, this is so important. Because there's one way to teach something like this that says something like this. If you could just get prayer and get healed, then your behavior could change. If you could just come up and get some prayer and get God to heal your heart, then when God heals your heart, your behavior will change. And that is not how Ezekiel, and there's some truth in that. But there is, that is not how Ezekiel frames it. Ezekiel says, no, 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 just by faith, start to behave better, and there's a new heart and a new spirit wrapped up in that. Because the truth is, is some things you can't be healed from. You can't. Some abuses are so horrendous, you want to get healed from that? I don't think so. Some divorces are so violative, you want to get healed from that? I don't think so. Some violations are so personal, you want to get healed from that? Uh-uh. And that's the beauty of this passage. Ezekiel says God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand spanking new one. Why would you walk around with a patched up wounded heart when there's a new heart and a new spirit waiting right there for you? So I bless you to be people who are brave enough to examine your family tree and say, how could I be a hero to my family? What changes do I need to make? Where can we take responsibility and for our generation say, let's live in life. Let's not just invite light into darkness for sin, although we embrace that. Let's not just invite it this way or that way. Let's include our whole family tree in the redemption story of Christmas. That when you look at a tree, I want you to think your family tree and ask, where are we perpetuating darkness and where are we perpetuating light? Be the hero of your family tree. Let's take a second and be quiet before the Lord and be introspective and reflective. This will be our altar call time where if you feel you need prayer or something, if you want to come out here, there'll be people who are, you know, who could pray for you. They're trained to pray for you. Um, if you want to do it right there in your seat. But if you're if you're here and you're married and your spouse is sitting close enough to you, if you could just take them by the hand, unless they really, really ticked you off this morning, then just touch their leg. It's fine. And as a married couple, a family, 
Or if you're a single mom or a single father who is raising your kids alone, I want you to ask this question inside yourself. Is there anything that we are excusing simply because our family of origin did it? And then just simply pray this prayer underneath your breath. Lord, would you give us the courage to see it and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see? We don't want to just know it. Give us the courage to change it. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ and you could start your Christmas season by surrendering your life to Jesus. And if you need words to say around that, you could say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to choose today to trust your version of my life story instead of the one I've written on my own. I I, I think your way is better. And I'm going to trust that. Connect me with some people and teach me how to live. God's really pulling at your heart to trust him today. You could make that decision right where you are. Lord, I pray for every person in the sound of my voice. Would you give us the bravery to see it and the irresistible urge to respond to what we see? May next year at this time when I come by, may there be story upon story upon story about where we changed our family tree that night. May I be looking and speaking to a bunch of heroes for the next generation. I speak bravery over you. I speak courage. I speak the irresistible urge to act. Be the heroes of your family tree. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on social media at Embassy Irving.